On this edition of Class Talkers, I've got a real treat for you. Dr. Theron Verdon of the SUNY Oneonta Communications and Media Department has been studying how the Russians and certain Islamic terror networks use sophisticated forms of rhetoric and propaganda to motivate various interest groups. Not only is this concept a political influence of academic interest to Dr. Verdon, it's also a professional expertise that he has shared as a consultant with various elements of the U.S. government. I'm Tim Welch, and this is Class Talkers. Well, I guess I always call it Islamic jihadism, the whole notion of uh, this spirit of struggle. Jihad means struggle, doesn't it? Uh, depending on the context in which you you use it. But yeah, initially, my understanding is that it was about struggle and it's been appropriated uh, to mean something more than that now. By them and by us. Absolutely. I think uh, a lot of people misuse it in our Western society and, and view it only in this negative sense of violence versus actually, you know, what I know from it, you know, you could have a struggle with, you know, giving up smoking, right? True. It's not necessarily causing harm to other people. It's just your own sort of personal struggle. And 60 million people have given up smoking, including me. So how tough can it be? (laughs) Right. (laughs) As someone who gave up smoking too many, many years ago, it can be pretty tough. (laughs) Yes, it can. Yes, it can. So what stimulated you to want to gain some insights into this area of communication? Um, That's it. That's it. Good question. Um, I've always been interested in uh, how we humans like to sort of access the dark side within us and make us do things that are probably against our own self-interest, right? So um, initially, I wanted to look at, uh, this was back in 2008, I was in Russia teaching at a university there for the summer. We had a program uh, uh, SUNY Oneonta had a program with this Russian university in, in uh, Siberia. And uh, I was over there and I was talking to this professor from London who taught economics and we were just discussing modern day Russia. And my initial idea was that I was going to go into Russia and what were the things they were going to do in the world around us to reassert themselves? Because I felt at that time, this is 2008, I was, you know, you go from being a superpower to having these the 90s, which were terrible for them. What would you do to reassert yourself? And we started talking about it, and we were talking about like resource wars. And then um, the professor brought up groups like Al Qaeda and sort of being this non-state radical variable that affects the international order. You know, we used to think that only states had the power to affect the world order. And it got me thinking, and it really fascinated me. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Now we have these non-state actors who have the potential to affect world events more than they used to. And they do this by sort of accessing that darkness within us. So I got really fascinated and I went off my Russia trajectory and started looking into um, uh, Al-Qaeda strategic communication. And and I felt I was doing it a, a disservice by just looking at it from a Western perspective. I wanted to sort of understand the history of Islam because we're not really taught it. And, and if you look at the history of Islam, the West and 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 sort of the, the world of Islam have a, this connection in many ways, and we're not taught about it. So I started to look into it, and it was it started to open up. It started to open up a lot to what Al Qaeda and eventually ISIS 
were saying to the world, now that I knew these stories from their past and from the history, suddenly the stories that they're telling now started to make a lot more sense to me. And I just was engrossed in it and it just became really fascinating to me. And so I kept up with it and I wrote a white paper for um, the uh, U.S. military, uh, in particular the NATO um, arm about Al-Qaeda's strategic communication in uh, for the Afghan campaign. And then eventually I transitioned over to uh, ISIS. Interesting side note, uh, I was talking to some uh, some intel people before ISIS came around and we were sort of talking about um, maybe the torch of Al-Qaeda being passed to another organization. This was before ISIS really started to explode onto mm. the scene. And so then uh, I started to follow that area. And, um, and then I wrote another, I wrote a paper for publication on ISIS and their use of uh, narrative to frame their actions and so forth. And then I went to uh, Afghanistan where I was working on strategic communication and, and that like in Afghanistan. And I was tasked with writing counter narratives to uh, the Taliban, to uh, ISIS, um, and ISIS in the Khorasan, which is the Afghan-Pakistan variation of the regular ISIS. And uh, you know, I was tasked with writing the uh, strategic mission narrative for the uh, NATO uh, mission in Afghanistan. That's, that's a lot of, <laughs> was well, a long way to get to that point. Huh? Well, no, but that's, that's fascinating. And in many ways, it circles back to Russia because Russia went into Afghanistan based on my readings because they were concerned about Islamic fundamentalism in their southern Soviet socialist republics. Um, so initially, in, in, the, in the story of going into, when I was in Afghanistan, I, I, like I did with um, my studies into Islam, I decided to read a lot about the history of Afghanistan. And my understanding of the initial reason why Soviet Union went into Afghanistan, Now, this is a long story of the great game. There's always been this motion going back and forth. And the, the original great game was about defending... Um, India's resources from the Russian kingdom, uh, kingdom of Russia. And the Soviet Union went in there to um, support the communist, I'm glad you brought this up, by the way, um, to support the communist movement in Afghanistan. Now, one of the things I did when I was in over, over in Afghanistan is I would monitor the media to see the, the themes coming out of the of what people, how people are talking about Afghanistan. And one of the themes that I saw emerge while I was there was, and I, I, I still fully believe this, that Russia was running some inf influence operations in Afghanistan while I was there and the outer, outer line areas. And one of the things that I noted when I was monitoring the media there was that they started this sort of spillover narrative that they need to be involved with the Afghan uh, reconciliation because they're worried about the spillover of potentially ISIS coming in there and, and the spillover of terrorism. And I began to notice that uh, people in different parts of, you know, in Pakistan and, and other parts were beginning to repeat that narrative, that story. And it really, it, it set my ears up because this is, I was beginning to see the emergence of this sort of strategic communication narrative of they're justifying why they're going, they're, they're doing the things they are with the peace process in Afghanistan. Um, but initially in the, when, when uh, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, 
Uh, I am not so sure that it was because of Islamic radicalism, because in the end, that wasn't a major issue there, but it became an issue as time went on there. Because I re- in my readings, I remember it being used as an excuse as to why they were, were there. It wasn't so much to advance international communism so much as to some analysis was that it was prevent these Soviet socialist republics around the Caspian and Black Seas from blocking access to valuable oil. Absolutely. They, I mean, that's, I, I, I can't say absolutely. Uh, that is their sphere of influence, and that has always been a, a, an argument of why that's their backyard, and they need to have sort of a, not complete control, though they do want control, but at least it's their sphere of influence, and they don't want people meddling in it, because it is their backyard. Are we close to solving this problem? I keep reading that ISIS is destroyed, and the Taliban are at the bargaining table. So um, ISIS is an idea. It's a, it's a mutation of Al-Qaeda, and Al-Qaeda is a mutation of multiple other organizations' ideologies. And I could give you the, the brief history of that, but I, <laughs> the brief history, I don't know if we have enough time for that. <laughs> uh, but um, so ISIS is an idea that I don't think is destroyed. I think that I think the organization might be on the outs, but the idea is going to travel and it's going to go into some other areas. And 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 ISIS is is like these like Al Qaeda. They're prepared. They they know this is the potential of having the organization destroyed. So they have set camps out into the world to they can go run and hide to. So it's not just in that area. It's it's in different parts of the world. Um, I can't talk about it, but there are certain areas in the country that ISIS is, we know ISIS is, is set up a sort of a, a foothold in. So they're not gone. The Taliban, the Taliban is just a reiteration of what's been happening in Afghanistan for centuries. And it's just this rural conservative versus urban liberal. And this is just the new sort of iteration of it. So I imagine that there's going to be some sharing of power between the Taliban and the our the government we recognize right now. I don't know what it's going to lead to. I can't predict that part of the world too well other than I can't predict. But I believe the the, the best way for to get some years of peace in Afghanistan is for for the Taliban to come to the peace table and for them to hammer out, you know, sort of a sharing of power. Now, how that will play out, I don't know. Um, one of the things when I was there I was worried about is they were talking about, you know, like um, some of these shadow governors in the different areas that, uh, and a shadow governor, uh, for your listeners, is a Taliban, go- so you'll have governors of different districts that are the identified governors of the identified central government, but then there's the shadow governors, which are the people who are the Taliban, who are actually, they're also in a position of power, and they're the ones more likely who are going to actually mete out justice and do things for the people than the centralized government. And um, so one of my worries was is they would give these shadow govern- governors sort of control of these areas, and then they would kick out some of the people there who were against them out of their jobs, and now you have a disaffected population once again that's causes issues. So I don't know how it's going to play out, but I imagine it's going to be a little while before things really calm down. And we can't be too cocky about it because everybody's told us the Afghans swallowed the British Empire, then they swallowed the Russian Empire, Absolutely. and now they're going to s- swallow the NATO American Empire. Absolutely. Now, you, you, 
if there's a really good book, um, it's called, a, I'm going to mess up the name of it, A Game Without Rules. Mm-hmm. And um, I highly recommend anyone reading it. And I can't remember the author's name right now, and I apologize for that. But it's a, it's a game without rules. He tells the the author tells the story of Afghan's place in the great game from within Afghanistan. Because most of the time, when you talk about the great game, you just you're telling Brit, Britain and and Russia's story. Right. He's telling the Afghan story, and you can see that each time these co- these countries come in there, they repeat the same mistakes. And they just get run out by Afghanistan. And we're no different. We're doing sort of the same mistakes. We're doing, in this case, um, the numbers tell us that people want us to stay there. In most cases, previous cases, they wanted them to go. But we are still going to eventually leave. Well, we have to because it would would seem as though we just lose the will. We've lost, I mean, people, what is it, 18 years now we've been there? Yeah, 18 years. It's the lo- one of the longest wars that we've been involved with. We don't have that long of an attention span in the United States. <laughs> no, and you know what? And that's that's what um, organizations like Al-Qaeda was counting on. We just don't, we're, they would call us the paper tiger. We don't have the will to stick, it, stick to this game. Al-Qaeda looked at it as this is going to be generations of warfare. And all we have to do is just wait it out for, these, for, for the Western powers because they just, they don't have the stomach for it. They don't, they don't like this stuff. Uh, their people don't want to deal with it. And all we have to do is just wait them out. On the other hand, we can't just forget about it because I'm reminded of the fact that al-Qaeda is what Osama bin Laden harnessed to be able to create one of the most successful commando raids in history for $400,000. He created the 9-11 attack on the Twin Towers that uh, caused billions of dollars worth of damage. Al-Qaeda and 3,000 people killed yeah aside from that of course Uh, but I mean it was just a remarkable uh, raid harnessing this kind of quasi Islamic fundamentalism that uh, and uh, identifying an enemy and going after them and succeeding and beyond anyone's wildest imagination and it was completely unanticipated Right. The, the attack, it, 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 I, I look at it sort of like a, and this is, I hope this isn't a terrible analogy, but I look at it like a, 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 a shooter. Okay. Like a, it's a shooter that goes into a building or, or goes into, onto a campus and you can't predict when that, the shooting's going to take place. You don't know when this person's going to snap, but you can see the signs that something's on its way. All right. And that's sort of like the 9-11 attacks. We knew something was happening. Uh, we just didn't know what was going to happen or when it was going to happen. So the uh, Richard Clark, um, under the Clinton administration, he pretty much, he, they, they were following uh, al-Qaeda and uh, CIA. I forget the name of the, the special group, but they called them the Manson family. Um, they, they knew something was in the works. They just didn't know when and where it was going to happen. And, and they didn't know how it was going to play out. But they, they knew the strategy existed. They didn't know how the operation or the tactics of the operation were going to take place. Well, it just seems remarkable that that really is what has led us from al-Qaeda to the Taliban to ISIS, all of it in an area of the world that seems so foreign and its only importance is its relationship to oil. Right. Um, 
it's it I, right and then it's such a foreign world and that's why i find it so intriguing and so fascinating that it is a sort of an alien world to westerners um i go to bahrain occasionally to work on some communication stuff and there's a lot of westernization to it but then there's a lot of sort of foreign sort of things that you don't quite comprehend. So let me give you uh, an example of sort of how this sort of played out. I was driving in Bahrain and I heard, I was at a stoplight and I heard a screech and a loud crash. And I looked and the car had lost control and drove up on the median and hit a light pole. And the person got out of the car and they were stumbling. My immediate reaction was, I'm jumping out of my car to go help this person. No one else is doing it because I looked around and getting ready to run through traffic and no one's doing it. And I'm like, what is going on? And I realized that it was a woman uh, in full uh, um, gear, not a burqa, but uh, recall the name right now. And I immediately stopped and thought, am I doing the right thing? Am I, am I, am I going to upset a tradition here by rushing to this person's aid and helping them? So against my sort of own best judgment, I got back in my car and I drove off and I, I reported it. Um, you know, that hmm. sort of thing is so alien to me yeah. that I had to stop from helping someone because my initial reaction is to go help someone when something bad happens. And here I had to stop myself because I didn't want to cause a bigger problem. And yet Westerners have inserted themselves throughout history in this part of the world, the part of the world where ISIS used to dominate uh, was really a function of the Ottoman Empire that fell apart in, uh, after World War I and was split up between uh, France and Britain. Right, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because that in, in my research into, sort of into uh, global jihadi uh, arguments and, and I'm gonna in a second I'm gonna differentiate global jihadi versus regional jihadi um, uh, organizations. Uh, the Sykes Pico Agreement that carved up the Ottoman Empire is one of the main touchstones for a lot of their uh, propaganda. That this is, in fact, ISIS. One of their original campaigns was it was about breaking borders, and those borders were the ones that were drawn by. Uh, France and Great Britain after World War One. So they that, call it the Levant. Yeah, they wanted to get rid of the so breaking these sort of subjective borders was their point to sort of we can stand up to the West. Um, now, I, and I'm going to circle back to regional versus uh, uh, global, and why global was sort of fascinating to me is because initially um, Al Qaeda's uh, ideology was born in sort of this regional this is before al-Qaeda, they're regional sort of, you have these powers that are corrupted by the West and we need to get rid of these powers in Egypt and, and, and whatnot in these places that are, and, that are corrupted by the West. And then what eventually what al-Qaeda did was, and I think it was Zawahiri who said, let's not look at the near enemy, let's look at the far enemy. So instead of looking at the problem, let's look at the cause of the problem. The problem is these dictators who are westernizing us or, or, or controlling our people. But the only reason they're doing that is because the West is sort of involved with, let's go after the far enemy, which is the West. And in particular, in this day and age, it's the United States of America. Um, and so they went after us, right? And that's the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And what did they hit? They hit three symbolic, well, they tried to hit three symbolic, they hit two symbolic places, right? The Pentagon, which is our military might. The Twin Towers, which, you know, granted, really used for trade, but I mean, the World Trade Center is our 
economic might. That's another one of our things. And then they were going after our political power, which, you know, depending on which variation, it's either the White House or the Capitol. So they wanted to hit those three symbolic places to sort of send a message to the world. And, uh, and that message is we can stand up to the West. You can do this. And that's what ISIS did with breaking the borders. That's what al-Qaeda did by hitting the three symbolic places of the United States of America. And this is sort of what their argument is. And Osama bin Laden supposedly was a uh, missionary of Wahhabism, which is that very conservative form of Islam peculiar to Saudi Arabia. And he was supposedly inspired because Saudi Arabia allowed itself to be used for Air Force bases and military bases, uh, which thereby fouled the Holy Land as far as Mecca and Medina were concerned. Right. That traces back to the uh, 1991 Gulf War uh, when um, Iraq invaded Kuwait and uh, Saudi Arabia uh, invited us in, uh, we requested to come in too, to uh, defend it in case Iraq wanted to go into Saudi Arabia. And so, and according to uh, Osama bin Laden, that was that was essentially for our term heresy that you're allowing these Westerners into the holiest of holy lands, and uh, so that was a flashpoint for one of his arguments. You've been doing quite a bit of consulting work uh, uh, for the United States and various entities, and uh, I'm wondering if you have the ability to focus on what kind of strategies, communication strategies you're recommending for us either to neutralize these threats or extricate ourselves from them. <laughs> um, when I was in Afghanistan, I, I was the primary author of sort of the strategic narrative and themes for what was uh, a NATO's mission in Afghanistan. And I designed it around the idea of this is uh, eventually that this is why we can leave. All right. So here's what's happening now. This is where we want to go. I can't really talk in depth about it. And this is this is when we leave. And so it was all designed around uh, explaining, you know, we're here for a reason, but we're going to go. All right. So and then my other uh, my other opportunities in that were to write counter narratives to um, what would ISIS K or uh, the Taliban say when certain activities took place. Uh, major activities, maybe major operations. What would they say and what would we say in response to that or what can we expect for them to do? So uh, I, in, in that instance, I, got, I was very lucky to participate in that. Because for me, it's really fascinating and, oh, it's, yeah. and, it's, and it's weirdly enough fun. Uh, lately, what I've been doing with uh, Middle Eastern communication is um, I've just been doing a lot of editing and a refining of sort of these mis mission messages and, and narratives. I'm trying to position into another place of actually helping them formulate them rather than getting them afterwards. Uh, and I hope to get that within the next year. I would imagine General Petraeus has read some of your material. He's very fascinated with this element. He wrote the uh, the handbook for uh, counterinsurgency, and he happens. I met him once because he's a he's very involved in the U.S. Grant Association and the uh, and Grant's Tomb Restoration Project. Oh, that's great! And I just thought I'd mention it, and wondering whether you've uh, read any of uh, General Petraeus's 
writings on counterinsurgency. Absolutely, you can't help. When I was also another time in when I was in Afghanistan, I read a lot on uh, counterinsurgency. So uh, and insurgency. Uh, so yeah, I've read some of his stuff. I've read a lot of uh, um, other things that he cited in his works. So. Um, I've read his stuff. I don't know if he's read any of my stuff. I do know a lot of the stuff I wrote in Afghanistan, CENTCOM, where it was, I was told by someone at CENTCOM that they were using some of it and they, or at least they enjoyed it. Not like as an entertainment, but like it no. was a good idea for it them. It provided some insights, I'm right. sure. Yeah. So what's your next step? What would you like to do with um, your insights into Islamic fundamentalism, jihadism, and the recruitment phase. I mean, that's, that's also what's fascinating about this is this is a, an effort to recruit um, disaffected youth, perhaps, or should we not dismiss them as simply disaffected youth? Um, well, my, my new shift has been back to Russia. That was my original point. So I've been doing a lot of research into Russian strategic communication and narrative and, and disinformation operations. Now, with the recruitment of uh, potential jihadists, is one of the interesting things when I was in Afghanistan is I was a part of a uh, counter-extremist uh, working group at the U.S. Embassy. And some of the recruitment tools we saw or we knew about were very quite fascinating in that they were very base. Um, one of them was getting them women. It was, <laughs> it was as, as simple as that. It was like, yeah. these guys, I mean, here's women for you. They have needs. Yeah, uh, which was, you know, gross, and at the same time, it made sense. The other was um, just sort of these fascinating... Uh, so one of the things they have in Afghanistan is they have these little chips that you can put into your mobile phone that will play popular music, but then what they would do is they would put messages in between them of the popular music of sort of promoting their cause. And so you had this sort of entertainment and the sort of persuasive propaganda. And so we were trying to figure ways of how do we stop that happening before it does. So like inoculate the disaffected youth before those messages come. And that was one of the more, that was a really interesting discussion we had. I can't talk about all of it, but it was sort of interesting in like, we, we, we never got to the point of how to stop the, the, the honey traps, which were the women. But with the propaganda one, uh, what we were talking about is for education, um, which could also lead to negative things too, because if you're educated and you can't get a job, then you might be likely to be one of the recruits. One was education, but the other... Um, was just sort of a real simple message. Uh, we were, they brought in a bunch of uh, thought leaders in, in um, Kabul, and we were talking around it, and at one point I said, what we're, what we're not saying here is that no one's giving anyone hope. You have to have hope. The Taliban messaging and the ISIS messaging is, is not it's taking dire circumstances and and making them even more dire you need to have that sunlight and a lot of the the um afghans agreed with me it's like no one we need to we need to press this idea of hope and then you can start doing the bigger work we never really launched anything from that that i i've seen uh, and i eventually left before anything of that happened but it was sort of fascinating to me that the people there were, were agreeing with me that the, one of the base things is just having a sense of hope and it, I was reminded uh, when you talk about hope that 
one of the big uh, elements of the Arab Spring occurred in 2011 when, and it seems to, I talked to my public relations students about this, about the use of cell phones to propagate something called the Arab Spring in 2011 in Egypt, in Tunisia, in, uh, um, I suppose, uh, uh, parts of Iraq and uh, other places in the Middle East. Uh, and it seems to me Syria. That, <laughs> Syria, of course. Um, and um, I just felt as though this was an opportunity to talk about the recruitment function that that represented, the social media function that now seems to have been co-opted by these networks of jihadists. Uh, how much do you study uh, 21st century communication tools in this effort at uh, minimizing this threat? That's a that's an interesting question that it's, it's sort of hard to explain. What I tend to look at is how do they construct perceptions of the world um, through narrative? Like how do they get people to sort of agree like, yeah, things are terrible, I, I gotta kill someone. And what social media does is it adds, it, it's a part that, it's a tool that adds to that overall construction. Um, I'm one to think that social media is, it, what it does is, and, and this goes to my Russian research too, is that it, it doesn't so much persuade a person to join something automatically. What it does is it reinforces an attitude that may already exist or it, or, or it, it, it stokes the flames of an attitude or, or it can, it can help steer someone towards a perception. So in that, it's, it's sort of a, it's, it's, it's a powerful tool, but it's not so powerful because it's not, just by using social media, you're not going to persuade anyone to, to change their mind or, 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 or have a specific behavior. But it's a tool to bring them into that dialogue to eventually get them to, to change it. I, I'll give you an example of outside of, of recruitment and, and jihadi uh, recruitment and um, and this was a friend of mine was telling me about their tactics. And this is a, 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 a European military organization that I'm, I'm not going to identify. But one of the things they did was they used social media. And it wasn't to recruit. It was just to tell their story. But it was uh, to bring people to a specific website to have a discussion. So they would post something about like this. We're doing X, Y, and Z. Learn more. Click this link. And they would bring them in. And if someone would click the link, they knew that they were interested, right? Because it take it, it seems weird to say this, but you really need to be interesting to click on a link and to go somewhere else because it's easier to just flip past it. So once you've done that, you've sort of made a uh, you've told us that, okay, you're engaging in, in this sort of message in a, in a different way than most people are. And th so it would click and it would link them into um, their website and then they can go to a discussion board and, and the, the people there could engage and talk to them about stuff. And that's what uh, they did and it, it was fascinating. And then uh, jihadists sort of do that too is you need to start a dialogue with these people, an individual dialogue, not so much like a broad sort of what social media is, is just shooting a message out there and people liking it, is you need to bring them to so you can start talking to them. And when you start talking to them, then you can start really, once you can form these attitudes, then you can really start strengthening those attitudes through this interpersonal communication. And once you created the strong enough attitude, then the behavior will change for an extended period of time versus sort of a quick behavioral change, which is what most social media will get. 
I could talk for hours about that. I don't know if that will make sense to your uh, audience. <laughs> well, I find it fascinating, and you allowed me to come back to Russia where we maybe should conclude our conversation today and talk about um, the disinformation campaigns that uh, were celebrated during the 2016 presidential campaign and whether or not uh, the Russians utilize social media to um, reinforce negative American stereotypes. Absolutely, they did. Um, I've been working on this research project for a little while now, and I can it, and I've gone through and seen the ones that are identified as Russian trolls. And there's a lot of very interesting websites that track these things that I've been going through, and. What they did was it, they didn't persuade anyone to do something. What they did is they got the, they reinforced attitudes that already exist within us, okay? So Americans have a, a long history of sort of distrust for the government. And so what they did was is they just reinforced that distrust. Now, we all have different reasons why we distrust the government, right? But... All you have to do is go after that distrust for the government. And this leads into a much bigger uh, point of what their total warfare objective is, is to destroy this, the trust of our government. Like, and a government only rus runs on trust. And if you can destroy that, you've destroyed an institution. Sounds like they're coming close. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's not hard to do in America because we already sort of have a historical... All they're doing is attaching their messages to these narratives that already exist. Um, so they push, they're coming for your guns, all right? That's yeah. already existed before they were around. They just reinforced it. They ratcheted it up. Or for Black Lives Matter, they said government doesn't... They, their job for, like, uh, the African-American community was to suppress their vote so they wouldn't go out and vote. So they would run that distrust of the government uh, ops program. And same with right-wing uh, pro-gun groups. They're coming for your guns. You do something about it. Uh, they're coming for your Bible. These are all stories that already existed. All they did was just really stoke those fires. And they did it in a really crafty way because what, what, I, what I see is that they, we in America, we think in very short term. We think in quarters, right? You know, yeah. it, it's all business to us. And the rest of the world doesn't see the world as business. And what Russia did is they built these networks of trust before they launched their campaign. So one of the reasons why people will retweet or repost something, it's not just that it fits their worldview, it's also do they trust that person, okay? And so let's just do this as an example. Um, I know in two years that I want you to retweet some of my negative posts. So what do I do? Well, I go into your community and I present myself as a part of your community. Let's say you're a Star Wars fan. And I start posting Star Wars memes and Star Wars information. And we, you know, if they have the time, we exchange stuff. Or I just, I'm, I become a presence there. And you know that there's nothing nefarious about me because I am just like you. And then around the right time, I start posting subtly more progressively uh, negative news about a specific candidate, Trump or Hillary or whatever. And I already have your trust. You know me. You've seen me before. And then I start saying, well, look, Hillary, is, let's call her Killery. And, <laughs> and you go, okay, yeah, yeah, that's funny. And, and then you start reposting my stuff because I built that. They've laid the trap. 
they've been working on it for a while and it may not be two years but it could be it, things are so fascinating and it could just be like a few months sure. but people see you and they identify you as someone that has similar interests and therefore you're more trustworthy you're more believable hey look at what they posted i'm going to repost that it's it's nothing new it's just the it's nothing new in persuasion it's nothing new what they're doing is nothing new in sort of propaganda or sort of uh, influence warfare it's new in that they're able to do it so efficiently and and really go into our heartland with it and of course they've been doing it also in ukraine and they're taking advantage of brexit to separate the European Union. Absolutely. My, I wanted to do a research project with that with some uh, um, uh, universities in, in the UK that uh, I, this is, this is before we found out about like Cambridge Analytica and, and some of these other organizations that might have had connections with them, that it, 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 it blew my mind that something like Brexit actually happened. And I began to wonder, you know, because I've been looking into this, is like, is this a campaign by the Russians because this is this is their mo. This is what they do. They it fits what they want to happen with the European Union. It fits with sort of a, a narrative within a, a demographic of 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 Great Britain of you know like we're our own independent place. We don't need to be a part of this. And you know it. And then it came out that they potentially could be. I think it's I, I, I can't say I, I know 100% that's confirmed that they were a part of it but I mean I think that's the case it seems like when they when they see controversy and acrimony they go in and enhance yep. it in some way yeah yeah that's exactly what they do then and, and it's and it, they use it as a wedge right yeah if there's a wedge issue they're going to go in there and they're going to hammer away at that wedge till the wood splits um, I would love to do some work with people in Sweden too, because they're on the front lines of their disinformation campaigns. Um, I just need to find the right people to work with on that. Well, this has been fascinating. I thank you very much for your time, and I hope we can do it again when you learn more. Absolutely, I would love to. I like, and, and my wife would love it too, because she she gets tired of me talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, you'll no, have a broader I, audience now. I'm just kidding, Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Darren. Thank you. You've been listening to another edition of Class Talkers, where you'll hear interesting voices from the State University of New York at Oneonta. Hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Theron Verdon. I'm Tim Welch, your host. And when you get a chance, please subscribe to this podcast. Thanks.